sometimes in this life we get lost. These times force us to search for a way out, and sometimes we search in the wrong direction. But if we're lucky, we head towards the light. Sometimes heading towards the light feels uncertain and terrifying, but if we survive it, we're stronger for it and forever changed. It's important to sometimes do dangerous things carefully. It's the only way I know how to go forward. And isn't that where we're all trying to go? This is a story of a time in my life where I was totally lost and the adventure I took to find out who I am and to be found. Welcome, and hi, my name is Matt. This is the story of a time in my life I was totally lost. I didn't know what to do, where to go, or who to be. And I found my way by taking a chance and leaving all I knew behind in order to embark on a dangerous adventure to the cradle of civilization and rhythm, the dark continent of Africa. If I was going to feel lost, I might as well get lost and hopefully survive it and return a changed person. After I left high school, I had no plan. So I started working construction. I never actually graduated, I just stopped going eventually. I was living in Massachusetts at the time and joined a construction crew for work. The other carpenters were tough Irish drunks who gave me the nickname, Maddie Danger. Because I was constantly putting myself and my coworkers' safety at risk due to my dumb mistakes. I knew carpentry wasn't my calling. And when my mom asked me to help her move back to St. Louis, where we were originally from, I jumped at the chance to escape the life of an alcoholic construction worker with a bad back and swollen liver. Once I was back in St. Louis, I got a job as a valet and later a bouncer at a cabaret nightclub. I'd work till it closed at 3 a.m., get to sleep around 4 or 5, sleep all day, and return at night. I hated the club and its rich patrons, so I didn't much mingle with them. And my schedule didn't allow much time to meet people, so I was incredibly lonely. I spent most of my free time playing my drums in my mom's basement. I was the greatest drummer in my mom's basement, where I played along to my favorite albums with headphones on. I hadn't played with other musicians for a couple years since high school. I was in a rut. I had no direction. I'd never been anywhere. I'd certainly never left the country. And my heart was still wounded from the betrayal of my high school sweetheart who cheated on me with my best friend. So I decided to make a bold move and travel by myself searching for something. I didn't know what, but I'd know it when I found it. I didn't have a lot of money, so I knew wherever I went, it'd have to be a third world country where I could get the most bang for my buck. 
I thought about things I loved. I realized I loved the drums, and I loved big cats, and I was desperately attracted to black women. So I decided on Africa. I knew nothing about Africa. So I bought a backpack and a book literally entitled Backpacking Through Africa. When I told my friends I was going to Africa, many of them said, Africa's a big country. To which I'd respond, it's a fucking continent, idiot. It's got like 50 countries. So I decided to start my adventure in Egypt. I wanted to see the pyramids, then eventually take a train through the Sudan to Kenya and Tanzania. At the time, the movie Out of Africa, starring Metal Streep, was quite popular. So I knew it was going to be wild and pretty. Eventually, the day came when I took off from St. Louis, Missouri to Cairo, Egypt, with a layover for several hours in London where I got drunk in a pub for the final leg of my flight. My plane landed in Cairo at one in the morning, and instead of walking through a sky bridge tube from the plane into the airport, I walked down outdoor stairs onto a tarmac that looked like a giant empty parking lot. I was instantly in the middle of a couple dozen children beggars all yelling, Bakshish, Bakshish. I remember thinking, what the fuck did I just do? I hurried through a sea of child beggars to get my luggage which consisted solely of one giant black backpack and to try to get a cab. It was so late at night that I knew the youth hostel I'd read about in my book was closed. So I told the driver to take me to the cheapest hotel in the city and that I'd find the international youth hostel in the morning. I'm sure he massively overcharged me, but I just needed a place to get my bearings. I soon found myself alone in a filthy little hotel room in Cairo, Egypt at 3 a.m., eating a can of cold Dinty Moore's stew I'd packed in my backpack. Terrified, and looking forward to the morning light and the optimism it would afford me. What I didn't realize was that it was the middle of Ramadan, the Islamic holiday where Muslims abstain from eating, drinking, and sexual activities during the day. So the whole city seemed to be awake all night, making up for lost time. It felt like sleeping in the middle of a parade, but I eventually dozed off. I was suddenly awoken by the totally foreign sound at sunrise of giant speakers all over the city blasting the Quran, a Muslim prayer that is repeated five more times throughout each day. This would be an almost daily occurrence for months. So I put on my backpack and I headed to the youth hostel where I ended up befriending many other travelers from around the globe. I noticed that we Americans tend to be more tourists than travelers. We like to go to foreign lands and be treated to the same comforts we're accustomed to. I wanted none of that. In fact, when I would come across other Americans, I would tend to keep my mouth shut to not be identified. I found most Americans abroad to be loud, spoiled, and entitled. And I wanted a more pure experience of adventure. I was there to learn how others live and why. Over the next two weeks, I ended up exploring Cairo and its cafes, shops, restaurants, and amazing bakeries. I went to the Pyramids of Giza and the Sphinx. I was able to enter the Great Pyramid, which is the largest of them. 
through a small portal a few levels up from the sand. I walked up a long cave passageway until I was at the center of the inside of the massive pyramid. All the while noticing the air becoming harder and harder to breathe until I found myself in a giant burial chamber. At the center of this room was an altar that held a coffin at one time containing a mummy. But now, the room was empty, except for me and this altar. I reached into my bag, took out a pair of drumsticks, and began to drum on the ancient stone walls. I made a recording of my impromptu performance with my portable cassette recorder that had a stereo microphone that I'd purchased specifically for my trip. I didn't take a camera. At the time, I knew my photography skills wouldn't do justice to the places I was going, and I didn't want to cheapen the memories with bad photos. I decided to bring recording gear, hoping to capture the sounds of my travels instead. Sounds of music, people, animals, anything I found interesting. For pictures, I decided to buy postcards everywhere I went, thinking that a professional photographer's images would be better than anything I'd capture. In the next two weeks, I explored Cairo and its museums and took a train down the Nile to the Valley of the Kings to visit King Tut's tomb, a cave carved out of solid rock at the foot of a cliff. I then went to the Temple Karnak, with its sea of giant pillars and hidden passageways covered with pornographic hieroglyphics. I would spend my nights drinking tea and beer, smoking hash, and playing dominoes with old Egyptian men. But after two weeks of 114 degree heat, I was over it, and I decided to make my way to Kenya, which is where I really wanted to be originally. I was after my dream of drumming with African tribes, seeing big cats up close in the wild, swimming in the Indian Ocean, and hopefully meeting a beautiful African girl. But I was soon advised to not take a train to the Sudan to get there, and instead spring for a plane ticket because bandits had recently been hijacking the trains and I was in danger of being robbed or even killed. I landed in Kenya's capital city of Nairobi and I can't explain it, but I instantly felt comfortable with the familiar sense that I'd been here before. This feeling I had would endure the entire three months that I was in Kenya. Maybe it was some cradle of civilization sense memory stuff. I don't know. But I felt at home. I took a matatu to the hostel I was to stay at. A matatu was the preferred mode of public transportation of Kenyans and consisted of a minivan packed to the gills with passengers smashed together and on top of one another. It was a seriously unsafe mode of travel and they would crash all the time injuring and killing passengers but I only had a budget of 15 American dollars a day, so it was worth the risk. I spent the first few days getting acclimated, exploring Nairobi and all its trappings. I would usually start my days walking to a hut that served the best chai tea brewed in a giant cast iron pot sitting on hot coals in the middle of a dirt floor hut with chickens walking around me. Then, I would make my way to the forest to feed and play with the aggressive monkeys that live there. My nights were spent seeing live music at local dive bars. I would be the only white person there surrounded by Kenyans. 
and usually I'd catch the eye of the women who wanted to dance with me, to the disdain of the Kenyan men watching. I remember seeing this amazing band, consisting of two electric guitars, electric bass, and a drummer that was playing the most junkyard drum set I'd ever seen held together with tape and rope and wires, with every cymbal broken and cracked. But this drummer was incredible. Every song they played seemed to last 45 minutes and kept the dance floor packed until someone would drop off from drunken exhaustion and be replaced with another dancer. I noticed the drummer's drumsticks were literally sticks carved from a tree. I always carried a couple pairs of fresh hickory drumsticks with me. So after the show, I went up to the drummer and told him how amazing he was and gave him a new pair of drumsticks. He and the band were blown away by my gesture and invited me to get in the van and go on tour with them. And I was helping them load out of the club and get ready for the travel to the next gig deep in the wild bush of Maasai country. My gut stopped me. I had an instinct that if I went with them, I might not survive it. So I thanked them and bid them safe travels. After a week of this routine, I boarded a train through the wilderness towards the coast of Mombasa. Mombasa was a bustling den of sin and chaos, a frequent stop and furlough of sailors and military from around the world. I then caught a small packed bus and headed up the coast to the magical village of Malindi, where I would spend the next two months more or less living in a beautiful African house with a grass roof. As my bus was driving down a winding dirt road in the forest, a family of lions walked across the road in front of us. I finally had my first of many big cat sightings, and I'll never forget it. My life in the coastal town of Malindi was perfect. I would take a bike ride down to the cafe and outdoor markets, have breakfast and coffee, buy some weed, go to the beach and swim in the Indian Ocean with its calm, warm waters. Nights would be spent drinking and dancing in the nightclubs, where I would soon fall in love with a beautiful African girl named Amina, with purple thread woven in her long braids. But everywhere I went, I could hear the constant din of drums in the distance. Eventually, I would follow my ears to the source. There I found six men, all drumming on drums of various shapes and sizes. They were playing a repetitive hypnotic rhythm pattern for ages. Then, all of a sudden, without a noticeable signal, they all changed the pattern. I was awestruck by their sudden rhythmic diversion. How did they know when to change? How did they do it? They did it because they weren't just playing music for fun. They were telling a story. They were telling a story with their drumming and they all knew where the change was because it was that part of the story. What I came to realize 
was that music plays a different role to different cultures around the world. I'm a white boy from the suburbs of America. I like to rock. Music is entertainment to me. The criteria I use when enjoying or playing music is different than in other cultures. The list of requirements I use when making music to entertain is, can you dance to it? Can you drive to it? Can you get high to it? Can you fall asleep to it? Can you fight to it? Or can you fuck to it? But in most of Africa, people belong to tribes. Not unlike how we in Western civilizations identify ourselves partly with the religion we're born into, whether we practice it or not. And each African tribe has its own history, rules, traditions, practices, and rhythms. Rhythm is a language to them. It says something. Throughout history, tribes could even communicate vast distances by drumming, each passing the message from the last, covering hundreds of miles in a short time. These tribes also have specific rhythms for different events. There's a birth rhythm, a funeral rhythm, a wedding rhythm, etc. These rhythms communicate. They can carry messages, as well as carry on and celebrate tradition and folklore. And everyone in these tribes are familiar with their stories. It's like how every American kid knows that Santa Claus is a fat guy in a red suit, whether they celebrate Christmas or not. Every member of these tribes know their tribal rhythms. So in a sense, they're all drummers. See, I had imagined that I would show up in Africa, dazzle them with my Western technique, and then learn the secrets of their ancient drumming moves. Then return to the States with these sacred ancient techniques. But I failed to realize that drumming and rhythm is a language to them. So when it finally came time for me to drum with African drummers, a ritual I repeated many times while I was there, my first instinct was to rock the fuck out. But as I said, in Africa, rhythm is a language. So when I first played with them, I began playing my best dazzling display of technique I had in my musical arsenal. And uh, they all started laughing. If rhythm is a language to them, then I was speaking a really fast array of gibberish. They weren't so much laughing at me, but more laughing at the musical jokes I was telling them. That's when I realized I'm not going to learn some sacred technique as much as I'm going to learn to listen differently. I'm going to learn how to have a rhythmic conversation in their language. And that opened up a whole new world to me. That's around the time I met Amina, a beautiful girl from the village. We instantly hit it off and fell in love. My days and nights were spent bicycling to town, smoking pot and going to the beach, drumming with tribes, and of course spending as much time with Amina as possible. Until one day, I was summoned into the office of the company that ran the property of the house I was living at. This African man called me into his office and closed the door. 
I sat in a chair and he behind his desk. He said that the whole town knew about Amina and me and that people were talking. I said, so? He leaned toward me over his desk, looked me in the eye and said, you better leave. I said, really? He said, yes, you better leave now. I got the message and returned to my house and started packing immediately. I knew if I stayed that my life was in danger. Amina came by one last time and I had to explain to her that I was leaving and she cried. And that's the last I ever saw of Amina. After that, I made my way back to Nairobi and befriended a couple of Australians at the hostel there. They asked if I wanted to go on safari with them to the bushland surrounding Mount Kilimanjaro. We were traveling across the bush in their well-worn Land Rover. As we cornered around a hill, suddenly the accelerator cable snapped, leaving the pedal on the floor and useless. We looked up to notice that we were in the middle of a herd of elephants and our vehicle was between a mother elephant and her young. Things were about to get deadly for us. So one of the guys crawled out and raised the hood. He could then accelerate the engine by hand while the other stayed inside and steered, but he was blinded by the raised hood. So the one under the hood had to not only accelerate by hand, but also tell the guy behind the wheel where to turn. We managed to creep our vehicle out of there as the mother elephant got loud. She was flapping her ears and preparing to charge. After that, they managed to rig up the gas pedal with a rope for a temporary solution. A couple miles later, we ran across two rhinoceros. One started stamping his foot like a bull, and he charged us. We narrowly escaped with the rhino chasing us just a couple feet from our bumper, knowing that our accelerator cable could snap at any moment, leaving us to be gored to death by angry rhinoceros. Or is it rhinoceri? We then set up camp, lit a fire, and slept in tents. All night, the insane sound of hyenas rang across the bush. The next morning, we crawled out of our tents to discover big leopard prints all around our tents. The idea that a leopard sniffed my tent while I was inside asleep was terrifying. After breakfast, we continued driving and came across a pride of lions eating a dead cow. We stopped next to them long enough for the large female lion to walk over and press her blood-soaked face against my passenger window, as if to say, what's in the oven? After that, we continued on until we spotted a group of gazelles grazing. I looked a hundred yards to my left to see a cheetah crouched, preparing to strike. And I'm not exaggerating when I say that I blinked and I missed half his sprint to the gazelles. But these gazelles managed to barely escape. And the thing about cheetahs is that they're sprinters. 
at 70 miles an hour if they don't catch their prey on the first strike. They lay down and rest for a long while because the amount of energy they use to do that takes it all out of them. I could fill a book, and maybe one day I will, about all the stories of adventure I had during my three months in Africa. But the point of this episode was to illustrate a point in my life where I was completely lost, without direction or guidance or even friends, and how I made the decision to make a bold move into the unknown, with very little money and no set plans. But I did it anyway. Again, I stayed out of the results and just showed up. And what happened was, I found myself. And when I returned to the States, after a week of decadence in the Greek islands, I returned a man. I gained a sort of confidence to take the next leap in my life. After returning home to my mom's house, I decided to put a band together. I'd never been in a real band, but I started to go out to shows and parties to see local bands in St. Louis and handpick the musicians I like from the local scene and invite them to jam in my mom's basement and see what happens. We all got along and we were excited about the sounds we were coming up with. And we called the band the unconscious. We set a rehearsal schedule and continued to rehearse and write our psychedelic punk rock neo-soul funk in my mom's basement. She owned a liquor store, so there was plenty of booze to turn my mom's basement into an underground club for the neighborhood kids to party and rock out. My mom's only request was that nobody sit on the dryer and that every rehearsal we had to play a Dion and the Belmont song to pay the rent. My mom is Sicilian, so when she was a teen, she could care less about Elvis Presley. Her Elvis was Dion. So we learned to play Run Around Sue and played at every rehearsal while my mother danced and cooked in the kitchen upstairs above us. Funny side note, Years later, I met Dion on a festival that we both happened to be playing in the Caribbean. I told him the story of how my mom made us play his music. He asked for my mom's name and address and sent her an autographed picture, CD, and letter. My mom still has them. Soon, The Unconscious booked our first real show at the infamous Cicero's Basement nightclub where I had previously seen many of my heroes perform. The manager of the club asked to be our manager. Her name was Karen, and she also managed the band Uncle Tupelo, featuring Jeff Tweedy, now of Wilco, and Jay Farrar, now of Sunvolt. We were on fire from our first show on, and within six months, became the biggest band in St. Louis, packing every venue we played and written up in every newspaper and music publication. So this episode is about being totally lost. I believe we've all felt that at times, but for me, I had to totally leave my familiar surrounding and enter the unknown. 
I had to travel halfway around the world to places so wild and remote that I couldn't rely on my normal way of living. You see, I went to high school for five years and I still didn't graduate. I just eventually gave up and stopped going. The only work I could get was construction, which I hated. My heart was broken and beat up. I feared my future because I had no plans for it. But I had dreams. Dreams of wild African adventures and dreams of starting a band, playing shows to pack venues and making records. And the thing that never died inside me was my strong, unwavering belief in these dreams. It's all I had to live for. And I was willing to risk my life as well as spend every penny I had to make it happen. So I left my mom's basement to climb pyramids, play ancient rhythms with African tribes, swim in the Indian Ocean, eat gazelle, get chased by angry rhinoceros, elephants, crocodiles, and hippos, and fall in love with a beautiful African girl. I left home a lost young man with no direction, and I returned a man with a momentum and agenda to start a band, a band to destroy all other bands. And that's what happened to me. So next time you're feeling lost and beat down, instead of trying to figure out a solution, maybe pick a direction less traveled and maybe a little dangerous and out of your comfort zone. Just show up, stay out of the results, go out on a limb and trust your gut. It's what's worked for me anyway. Thanks for listening and bye. My name is Matt. Freak.